ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so we've been doing the pillars of Iman and the last time we were rounding off the Iman in the angels. So the last thing that was left was a small section regarding some of the worship that the angels do. And in particular the dua that the angels make for the believers. The dua that angels make for the believers. There are different circumstances, different situations when the angels make dua for the believers. So that is what we're going to mention now to begin with and to round off the iman in the angels section. So (coughs) who are and what are the situations when the angels make dua for the believers? Category number one, they make dua for the students of knowledge. Category one is that the angels make dua for the students of knowledge. There are many texts that indicate to you and highlight to you the virtues of knowledge and the people of knowledge. And from the virtues of knowledge, from the virtues of knowledge and gaining knowledge is that the angels they make dua for the people of knowledge for those striving for knowledge for those working to gain that knowledge the angels make dua for them and that is mentioned in the hadith of Abu Darda radiyallahu anhu qal سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول He said that I heard the messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم say من سلك طريقا يطلب فيه علما سلك الله به طريقا من طرق الجنة That whomsoever treads upon a pathway seeking by it knowledge, then Allah will tread with that person upon a pathway to paradise. That the individual seeking knowledge will have his pathway to paradise made easy for him. وَإِنَّ الْمَلَائِكَ and the angels, they lower their wings for the student of knowledge in pleasure at what he is doing in terms of seeking knowledge. And the virtue of a person of knowledge over a simple worshipper is like the virtue of the full moon. The night when the moon is full and bright, the virtue of that over the other stars. That is the example of the one who seeks knowledge and has knowledge over the one who is just a simple worshipper without a great degree of knowledge. 
وإن العالم ليستغفر له من في السماوات ومن في الأرض حتى الحيتان في جوف البحر and the alim the person of knowledge the inhabitants of the heavens and the earth they seek forgiveness for him the student of knowledge the one striving to gain knowledge of his religion the inhabitants of the heavens and the earth they all seek forgiveness for him even the fish of the sea they seek forgiveness for that student of knowledge wa innal ulama warathatul anbiya and the scholars they are the inheritors of the prophets wa innal anbiya alam yurithu dinaran wala dirhama and the scholars lam yurithu they did not bequeath leave behind as inheritance gold or silver money they didn't leave behind money as inheritance to be taken warathul ilm the prophets and messengers they left behind as inheritance knowledge that was the inheritance to be taken from the prophets and messengers so in this narration it mentions in that section in the middle that the inhabitants of the heavens and the earth they seek forgiveness for the students of knowledge for the people of knowledge for those striving upon knowledge and that of course includes the angels therefore they are from the inhabitants of the heavens so <coughs> one category of the people whom the angels they make dua for is the students of knowledge those who are striving to gain knowledge and that is something which is always emphasized and it's something which we do not neglect to emphasize on a regular basis because every individual needs to examine themselves and examine themselves properly what does that person know from his religion how much does that person know from the quran in understanding it in knowing its meanings how much does a person know of the stories of the prophets that allah has told us in the quran how much does a person know of the ahkam the rulings the right the wrong the halal the haram that is all mentioned in the quran how much does a person know of for example sahih al bukhari there are people and they sit there and they say i've read the whole of sahih al bukhari and i've read the whole of sahih muslim that's good it's good that a person has sat there and read through the whole of al bukhari and the whole of muslim excellent but knowledge as they say is ma hawa sadr that which your chest it holds simply reading and not remembering anything afterwards not memorizing anything not having understood anything then what has your reading benefited you it is not just a case of reading or even just a case of attending the class it is more than that <coughs> and that's why we always give that example some of the scholars used to mention that when it comes to classes there are two types of people who attend there are the students of knowledge who attend and then there are the guests who attend the students of knowledge who attend they are the ones who benefit from those gatherings as for the ones who attend as guests then they do not really benefit from that gathering they don't really go away 
having benefited and memorized or learned or remembered much because a guest when a guest comes to your home what is expected of him to do what is expected of a guest to do is nothing to sit back and relax he is a guest it is up to the host to do all the running around so the scholars they say some people come to classes as though they are guests to sit back and relax and not really do much and if that is the way you attend gatherings of knowledge with that mentality then years will go by of you attending even but then you'll notice after years have gone by you've not really held or retained any of that knowledge you've not really learned and established the principles but of course of course those who attend even as guests are still superior to those who do not attend at all and it's a calamity it is a calamity how can it be that ahlu sunnah the salafiyun how can it be that we are lacking in this area how can it be that we are lacking in the area and in the field of knowledge and seeking knowledge why and how can that be it should not be it should not be the case that the sufis they sit there with their mosque full learning their bid'ah and ahlu sunnah the salafis do not bother to turn up to their classes that should not be the case whatsoever knowledge it is of the utmost importance you look at the salaf and how they were when it came to knowledge they did not belittle knowledge they did not brush it aside as a secondary thing knowledge was always the priority knowledge was always what raises the person in his understanding of the religion in his understanding of who his lord is in understanding how to practice and fulfill the objective of his creation so make sure that you focus on the issue of knowledge make sure that you focus in making it a priority in your lives just the other day a question was sent forward in one of the other classes that there are certain brothers they miss the classes of knowledge due to watching football that they may be watching football matches and as a consequence they miss the classes of knowledge that <coughs> if it is the case is a humiliation it's a humiliation no less and that word is not harsh in its context it's a humiliation that a sunni salafi is abandoning the classes and giving priority to his football match or giving priority to some other match or some other sporting event that will neither benefit you in this world nor in the hereafter in reality gives you no benefit now nor in the hereafter the salaf they used to stay away even from the mubah not that we're saying the football matches fall into mubah according to some scholars they fall into haram to begin with because they are not covering their aura the players who are playing but it's a humiliation that a person would miss and forfeit the gatherings of knowledge for the sake of some sporting event that they have to watch on tv that's a disgrace and a humiliation so it should not be this way ahlu sunnah the salafiyun they should not be upon this way at all and we're not saying that they are but those who do find themselves in weakness those who do find themselves slacking then they need to fix that as a matter of urgency as a matter of urgency those who are not attending the gatherings of knowledge they are not prioritizing their once or twice a week in their markas most of the marak is only one class a week some of them may be two classes a week more than that rare you have one class a week maybe two a week at most two hours of your time in the week and you cannot put that aside one class some of the marak is 
and people cannot put time aside to attend the one gathering of knowledge, there are no excuses. Even when they come, a person tells you, but I'm working on that day. A person is working on that day. No problem. It's his shift. It's the way it is. He can't do anything about it. But then for that person to claim he's working on that shift continuously and regularly, and he's never ever going to therefore attend his weekly gathering, that's a problem. It's a problem. He should be striving, and those brothers should be striving to try and fix that problem. Are you even trying to fix it? Because it's a problem. Make no excuse of it. It's a problem, and you need to find a solution to it. If you're working, and you're stuck on your shift at the time of your one gathering of knowledge in your markas, where your community gets together, and the brothers and sisters get together, then that is a problem now, that you're unable to attend your community gathering. You're unable to attend the gathering of knowledge in your markas. So now you need to work to a solution. But if you're not, and most of the times you probably could if you tried, then you're not really striving for knowledge even in that situation. If you're not making any type of effort to try and change the shift, or try and get at least once or twice a month off in a rotation on that shift or something, it is not an excuse for a person to be absent from their community, from their gatherings of knowledge for a year, two years, three years, never once turning up and saying, but I work every Friday night, every Saturday night. So your whole life you're going to work and you're never ever going to attend gatherings of knowledge? That's a problem. It is a problem. Problems need solutions. So now those brothers and sisters, etc., brothers in particular in reality in that type of situation, they need to work to find solutions for those things. Make no mistake. A person may think it's not a problem. What's the problem? I got to work. Yes, you do. I have these responsibilities, those responsibilities. Yes, we all do. But at the same time, are you going to therefore spend your whole life, years and years, and you're not attending the gatherings of knowledge at all? You're not attending your community gatherings at all? Make some effort, do something, make some movement in that to try and change the shift, to change this, to change that around so that you can attend something. You can be in those gatherings of knowledge at some point. And that's for the ones who have a genuine excuse and have work, etc. As for those who don't really even have that excuse, then it's a, a greater calamity. It's a greater calamity for those who do not attend at all. They deprive themselves, they deprive their families, they deprive their children. It's a deprivation. Make no mistake, it is a deprivation. Depriving yourselves and your families. Depriving yourself of knowledge. Depriving yourself of learning what you have not learnt before. And you don't know. And that is not said upon any type of arrogance that some do and some don't. It is the reality. It is a fact of our situations. A fact of our situations that you can count on one hand the number of brothers in every markaz and city and center that have finished usul al-thalatha beginning to end and know it all. Have finished kitab al-tawheed beginning to end and know it all. Have finished al-usul al-sitta, al-wasatiyah, that they have finished those books beginning to end and know them. You can count on one hand how many of those types of brothers exist. So now that means the majority all of us are in need of this knowledge. And even the ones who know it, then that's not a reason for you not to attend. Attend to revise your knowledge, to recap your knowledge if you already know it, and you are more knowledgeable than the teacher who is coming. Excellent, no problem, mashaAllah. Allah put barakah into your knowledge. If you have more than the teacher coming, no problem. Come and revise and recap. Be with your community, with the brothers and the sisters. Come and join in those gatherings of knowledge where the angels descend upon. These are blessed gatherings. And it's a deprivation for those who deprive themselves of it. 
and they are only harming themselves. It is a harm. It's a harm to abandon the gatherings of knowledge. It's a harm to yourselves and your families if you're not coming and listening to the ayat of the Quran. You're not coming and listening to the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. It is a harm. There is harm in that for yourself and your families that you deprive yourselves of knowledge. So this is something we need to think about carefully. And we need to remind ourselves harshly when required. If it requires harshness in advice, then that is good and it is praiseworthy. Harshness in advice is better than being soft and pushing things aside, brushing them aside and letting the harm continue. Harshness in its place, in advice, in truly advising one another for the sake of Allah, if it is required, then that is something good. So with this issue of knowledge, it's something we need to prioritize. Classes are going on, you need to attend them regularly, every week, as a basis of knowledge that you're going to learn and the principles you're going to memorize. It is a must. It is not a choice. Knowledge is not a choice. Do you wish to live upon jahl? To live upon ignorance? Not knowing who your Lord is in reality? Not knowing about the Quran and the Sunnah in reality? So this is something we have to stop and ponder over carefully. To give time and attention and focus to. It is a mistake and an error for a person to disregard the classes of knowledge and the gatherings of knowledge. So, the first point mentioned here, regarding the types of people the angels make dua for, are the students of knowledge. And that doesn't mean students of knowledge who are at some elevated level. All of those, from the people, the believers who are striving for knowledge, they come under those general narrations of striving for knowledge. They come under those general narrations of students of knowledge, meaning those who are trying to learn knowledge. <coughs> the second category of people, whom the angels, they make dua for, الدُّعَى لِمُنْتَظِرِ الصَّلَاةِ وَلِمَنْ جَلَسَ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ بَعْدَ الصَّلَاةِ they make dua for the one who is waiting for the prayer. So you come to the mosque early for example, and you're waiting for the next prayer in the mosque, waiting for that prayer. Or as it mentions, after one of the prayers, you stay in the mosque waiting for the next prayer. That time of waiting that you are now in the mosque waiting for the next prayer. That is your intention. You are there knowing you're going to stay in order to perform the next prayer before you go. That waiting period, the angels make dua upon those people. Those who are in wait of the following prayer. And that is mentioned in the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. In Al-Bukhari, Kitab Al-Masajid, that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Al-Malaikatu tusalli ala ahadikum ma dama fi musallah, alladhi fihi ma lam yahduth. Taqool, Allahumma ghfir lahu, Allahumma arhamhu, that the angels, they pray upon one of you, whom remains in his place of prayer where he prayed and he does not break his wudu and the angels they send those prayers upon that person waiting in the place of prayer Allahumma ghfir lahu Allahumma arhamhu oh Allah have forgiveness upon him have mercy upon him in another narration in Sahih Muslim the Prophet said, لا يزال العبد في صلاة ما كان في مصلاه ينتظر الصلاة That a person, a servant, is considered to still be in prayer 
as long as he remains in that place of prayer, waiting for the next prayer. And the angels, they say, Allahumma ghfir lahu, Allahumma arhamhu, Oh Allah, forgive him, Oh Allah, have mercy upon him, hatta yansarif, <coughs> until he leaves, or until his wudu breaks. So that is the second category. The second category is regarding the one who is waiting for the prayer. Then the angels, they make dua for him. The third category, dua'uhum li'ahli suffuf al-mutaqaddimah fi salah They make dua for the ones who are in the first rows for the prayer. يَحْرُسُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ إِذَا صَفُّوا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ عَلَى الصُّفُوفِ الْأُوَلِ وَعَلَى الطَّرَاصِ فِي الصَّفِّ وَلِذَلِكَ أَمَرَنَا نَبِيَ سَلَّمْ بِالْإِقْتِدَاءِ بِهِمْ The angels when they line up before their Lord, they strive for those opening rows and to keep them tight. And that is what the Prophet ﷺ commanded us to do, to strive and give importance to the opening rows the first rows, and to make them tight and together. So the Prophet ﷺ said, أَلَا تَصُفُّونَ كَمَا تَصُفُّ الْمَلَائِكَةِ عِنْدَ رَبِّهَا Would you not line up as the angels line up before their Lord? قَالُوا يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ كَيْفَ تَصُفُّ الْمَلَائِكَةِ عِنْدَ رَبِّهَا They said, O oh Messenger of Allah, how do the angels line up before their Lord? قال يتمون الصفوف يتراصون في الصف They complete the rows and they are joined in the rows, tight in the rows. ومن حبهم لأهل الصف الأول صاروا يدعون لأهلها And so due to the love the angels have for the people in the first rows, uh, in the first row, so they make dua for them, and that is mentioned in narrations of the Sunnah also. In an Nasai, for example, Inna Allah wa malaikatahu yusalluna ala sufuf al that Allah and the angels send salutations upon the opening rows. <coughs> In the hadith of Ibn Majah, Inna Allah wa malaikatahu yusalluna ala saffil awwal, that Allah and the angels, they send those prayers upon the first row. So that is the third category, the first row. And that is something again, which has been neglected by the people, neglected by the believers, the importance of striving for the first row. Striving for the opening row behind the imam. A great virtue in that also. And that is something we mentioned before. In the University of Medina in those days, in the uh, university mosque. There was a huge mosque with a capacity of thousands on the campus for all the students. And you would see them how they would focus on trying to get to the first row. The minute somebody got up and left, they had to go, instantly that spot would be filled. And the first row would be tight. Tight as can possibly physically be. With every student who can possibly squeeze himself in, squeezing himself in. Knowing the virtue of the first row, and striving to be in that first row, so that is the third category. The fourth category of people that the angels, they make dua for. الَّذِينَ يَصِلُونَ الصُّفُوفَ وَيَسُدُّونَ الْفُرْجِ Those who connect the rows and complete and fill the gaps. All the time at the beginning of the prayer, you hear the imam, Telling the people to unite their rows, to combine their rows side by side, ankle to ankle, shoulder to shoulder. You hear all of this, 
from the Imam at the beginning of the prayer. And that is not something which is done in a robotic way that the Imam just says it. It's not something that you just say. Rather the Imam says it as a reminder to the congregation to do that. And then he should also check that they are doing that. It is not just to say it and you fulfill your responsibility. The Imam says it and checks and ensures that the rows are lined up. It's mentioned in one of the narrations of either Umar ibn al-Khattab perhaps or Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhuma, one of them, that when he was leading the prayer, when he was the Khalifa and he used to lead the prayer, he used to appoint someone to go and check all of the rows. The iqama would be done. The iqama for the prayer would be done. They would line up. Imam is there. And then he would appoint somebody to go and check all of the rows. But imagine this. The iqama has been done. And it mentions, and it was either Umar or Uthman, anhuma, one of them. He would stand now, the imam is standing at the front where he's going to lead. The iqam has been done. So now everybody's standing up and getting their rows together. He would appoint someone to go and check the rows. And that wasn't just a quick thing. In the narration it mentions that he, either Umar or Uthman, anhuma, was standing at the front. And in the hadith it mentions that he was just flicking around the pebbles on the floor. And one of the other uh, congregation, they were talking to him about some issues. Conversation was going on. They say he was there flicking some pebbles. You know when you wait. That he was standing, doing this. As you're waiting, you're just moving your foot around. Just waiting, waiting for the rows to get straightened out. Just moving your foot around here and there. Yeah, he was doing that. Moving his foot around. Pebbles, just on the pebbles here and there, pushing the pebbles, waiting around. Somebody was talking to him, asking him about this, about that, having a conversation until that man would finally come back after a while and tell him it's all straight, it's all lined up. Then he would say to that man, okay, line up now, and then they would pray. So the straightening of the rows is something that is done as a part of the sunnah. It is not just a robotic routine thing, Straighten your rows, Allahu Akbar. Rather, it is there to actually check it's happening. So, the ones who do that, they line up their rows, they straighten their rows, they give that importance to doing that. The angels send their du'as upon those people also. It's mentioned in the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَمَلَائِكَتَهُ يُسَلُّونَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ يَسِلُونَ الصُّفُوفِ وَمَنْ سَدَّ فُرْجَهُ رَفَعَهُ اللَّهُ بِهَا دَرَجَةُ That indeed Allah and the angels, they send their salutations, their, the prayers upon those who connect the rows. And whomsoever fills a gap, blocks a gap in the row, tightens it up, then Allah raises that person in a level so that is the fourth category. The fifth category of people <coughs> whom the angels send their prayers upon, it is upon those who send their prayers upon the Prophet wasallam. Those who send their prayers upon the Prophet wasallam, the angels send their prayers upon them. It is mentioned in the hadith of Amir ibn Rabi'ah عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال ما من مسلم يصلي علي إلا صلت عليه الملائكة ما صلى علي فليقلل العبد من ذلك أو يكثر In the hadith it mentions that there is not a Muslim who sends their prayers upon me, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad, etc. like that, 
sends their prayers upon me except that the angels send their prayers upon him. So, either a person does that a small amount, and some of them they do that a large amount. Some of the servants of Allah, they send their prayers upon the Prophet ﷺ hardly at all. And some, <coughs> they do it a greater amount. But those who do it, then the angels send their du'as upon them. So that is the fifth category. The sixth category. The sixth category of people the angels send their prayers upon. That they give their dua, they send their dua upon the ones who spend their wealth in the path of Allah. Those who spend their wealth in the path of Allah, then the angels they send their prayers, their duas upon those people. Al-Imam An-Nawawi, he mentioned that the scholars, they said, the spending that is meant here is Al-Infaq fi ta'at that you are spending in obediences to Allah, the righteous spending in the path of Allah. وَمِنْ وَمَكَارِمَ الْأَخْلَاقِ وَعَلَى الْعِيَالِ وَالضَّيْفَانِ وَالصَّدَقَاتِ upon uh, your families upon the guests, upon charitable ways, that you are spending your money in that way. بِحَيْثْ لَا وَلَا To the extent that you spending your money is done in this wise way, in the path of Allah, nobody can say you are somebody who wastes their money. It cannot be said about you that you waste your money. Such is the way of wisdom that you spend your money upon your family, your children in the path of Allah in charity, nobody would ever be able to say, this is a person who wastes his money. You do not waste it at all. You use it in the path of Allah. So that type of person who spends his wealth in the path of Allah, then the angels, they make dua for that type of person also. Number seven, Those who have the suhoor meal when fasting. Those who have the suhoor meal when fasting, the mutasahhirun, then they are also from the people the angels send their prayers upon. <coughs> that is ta'amun mubarak, a blessed food. Amara bihin nabiyu sallallahu sallam wa hatha alayh. The Prophet ﷺ commanded us to have the suhoor meal and he encouraged us to do it, to have that early morning meal. And it's mentioned in the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma anna Rasulullah ﷺ qal inna allaha wa malaikatahu yusalluna ala al-mutasahhirin that Allah and His angels, they send their prayers upon those who have the suhoor meal in their fasting. Category number eight. Their dua for a fasting person who opens his fast and opens the fast of others, provides for others to open their fast. So it is mentioned in some narrations how that is of course a virtuous action and the angels make dua for that person who is now opening his fast and providing the food for others to open their fasts on him. So the angels send their duas upon that person also. Category number nine. A person who visits somebody ill we know that visiting an ill muslim is one of the rights of a muslim the right of a muslim upon another muslim are five 
One of them, Iyadatul Marid, the visiting of an ill person. So the one who visits an ill person, visits an ill Muslim, goes there to comfort him and to visit him and to bring some happiness and his difficulty to him. Then the angels, they send their prayers and their dua upon those people also. Hadith of Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiyallahu anhu qal, Sami'atu Rasulullah sallallahu Muslim <clears throat> that when a man visits his Muslim brother, when a man visits his Muslim brother, Masha fi Khurafatil Jannah then that person walks in the fruits of paradise until he then sits. فَإِذَا جَلَسَ غَمَرَتْهُ الرَّحْمَةِ If he sits, when he sits, the mercy encompasses upon him. فَإِن كَانَ غَدْوَهُ صَلَّ عَلَيْهِ سَبْعُونَ أَلْفْ مَلِكٍ حَتَّى يُمْسِي And in the morning then, when he arises, 70,000 angels... They send their prayers upon him until the evening. And when it's the evening, 70,000 angels send their dua upon him until it becomes morning. And that is a narration in the Musnad of Al-Imam Ahmad uh, with an authentic chain of narration. That is the ninth category. The tenth category. The tenth category of when the du'as make, when the angels make du'a for the believers. This category is that the angels make du'a for the souls of the believers. The angels make du'a for the souls of the believers. In the hadith of Abu Hurairah, رضي الله عنه قال, إذا خرجت روح المؤمن تلقاها ملكان. That when the soul of a believer exits, تلقاها ملكان يسعدانها. Two angels, they receive that soul and they rise up with it. قال حماد فذكر من طيب ريحها وذكر المسك قال ويقول أهل السماء روح طيبة جاءت من قبل الأرض صلى الله عليك وعلى جسدك على جسد كنت تعمرينه It's mentioned how when that soul then arises up into the heavens and that the angels accompany it, two angels accompany it and then the inhabitants of the heavens, the angels, they say, Ruhun tayyiba, a righteous soul. From the soul of the believers, a righteous soul that has come from the earth. Sallallahu alayki, that the salutations or the, the prayers of Allah are upon you. Wa ala jasadin kunti and upon the body that you were within. And then the narration continues about the evil dua, the, the statement of evil that is given to the kuffar. But that is an example of the angels making dua for the souls of the believers. <coughs> there are exa- Those were all examples of the angels making dua for the believers. There are some examples of angels making dua against people. There are examples mentioned where the angels make dua against certain types of people. One of those people is that they make dua against a person who innovates in Medina. دعاؤهم على المحدث في المدينة 
المدينة حرام من كذا من كذا إلى كذا لا يقطع شجرها ولا يحدث فيها حدث من أحدث فيها حدث فعليه لعنة الله والملائكة والناس أجمعين that the Medina is haram it is the haram zone from a certain area to a certain area the natural trees are not cut within it and innovations are not done within it of course they are not done anywhere but in this case in particular it says whomsoever innovates in there then the curse of Allah and the angels and of the people upon him so that's an example of the angels cursing upon that person who innovates within the boundaries of Medina. Another example is that the angels curse those who curse the companions. So we know that there are certain misguided groups out there, certain misguided, deviated individuals who abuse and curse the companions and some of them out of the fold of Islam altogether with the beliefs that they're upon. But those, whomsoever it may be, that curse the companions and speak ill of the companions, then the angels curse them. The angels curse those who curse the companions. There are several other examples also. There are quite a lot of narrations in the Sunnah, several narrations in the Sunnah regarding when the angels would curse a person, the one who associates or attributes himself to other than his father. He uh, links himself in his lineage elsewhere. Then that is uh, an action that is not correct and the uh, displeasure of the angels and the curse of the angels would be upon him also the curse of the angels uh, it's mentioned regarding the female the woman the wife who refuses the uh, call of her husband for the intimacy and also the curse of the angels or the abstinence of the angels from giving their dua they would hold back from giving their dua to a person who is upon niyaha meaning those who scream and shout and lose control at the death of somebody somebody dies and they scream and shout and lose absolute control and that is from the affairs of jahiliyyah it's mentioned in the hadith, Laysa minna, not from amongst us. Man al khudud wa shaqqa al juyub wa da'a bid'a jahiliya. The one who beats himself and tears his clothes and screams and shouts like in jahiliya. That is a major sin, and it's mentioned how the angels curse that person or how the angels refrain and stop in giving their du'as to the person who falls into that. So that is a few examples from the sunnah regarding the praise and the dua of the angels for certain types of people and at the same time the curse of the angels upon other types of people. There is a lot more we could do. There is a lot more regarding the angels that is possible to be said. <coughs> this book is almost 350 pages just on the iman in the angels you could do a series of lectures for six months just talking about the belief in the angels but will suffice with those three lectures i think now regarding the belief in the angels uh that's where we'll round off on tonight next time then we'll begin on the belief in the prophets and the messengers and that too if you wanted, could be done over 30 or 40 sessions quite easily. But we'll do that over one session. One summarized session regarding our belief in the prophets and the messengers, how many there were, their names, the ones in the Quran. Uh, some of them were Arab, some of them weren't. All the various details regarding the prophets and messengers and our belief in them. 
That will be the next session in two weeks' time, insha'Allah ta'ala. So we'll round off on that. There's any questions then? That's okay. The point of suhoor in the morning, when you're having, uh, when you're fasting, to have that pre-dawn meal, as they translate it in English, then it's not an obligation to eat a, a, a large amount or a meal. Anything light will do. <coughs> Sheikh Al Fawzani said, if you can't eat anything at that time, just the way you are, you can't eat at that time. It's not a problem. Have something very light, just a snack. A couple of dates and a sip of water would do. And that is considered that you have now taken the suhoor. Go on. So the question here is, if you make an intention to fast tomorrow, for example, or another day, you make an intention to fast one day, for example. So now it's 9 p.m. and you're deciding you're going to fast the next day. But the next day, you put your alarms on and everything, but you fail to wake up. And you don't wake up until Fajr time has already entered. So now you can't have suhoor, you missed it. You woke up late. You had made the intention the night before you're going to fast the next day. Put your alarms and everything, got your food ready, as one of the brothers was telling us, ready in the plate, in the microwave. All you have to do in the morning is press that start button. So you've done everything. You've done everything. It's ready, prepared, just the start button left. But then you don't wake up in time. You wake up late, already Fajr has now entered, you cannot press that start button now. So now, are you supposed to fast the day? Can you still fast the day? What's the ruling? Absolutely. You can, if it's Ramadan, you must. If that happened in the obligatory fasting, you must fast the day. It's a mistake why some people, they think I missed the suhoor, that I'm not fasting today, and they don't fast. Wrong, impermissible. In that scenario there, you made the intention, but you were late for the suhoor, no problem, you've missed a sunnah, your fast is obligatory, and you must fast for the day. You're gonna fast without any food now, but that's how it is. So you fast for the day. If it is supererogatory, it's up to you. If it was an optional fast, one day you were just gonna fast, and you fail to wake up in the morning, it's up to you. You can still fast for the rest of the day. It will count as a full fast. But if you decide not to, then you don't have to for the optional. But the obligatory, even if you miss the suhoor, you must fast for the day. The books, of course. So in that case, the books, we'll start with the books next time. Belief in the books that have been revealed, that is a, not a long section. That in fact will probably go over and begin the Prophet section next session. So the belief in the books, there is not as many details as the other sections. So we'll start with the belief in the books next time first. Uh, briefly go over that topic and then move on into the belief in the prophets inshallah. Anything else? You cannot regularly combine your prayers throughout the winter. One-off events, scholars, they allow that it's mentioned. On a one-off occasion, something happened. You have to combine, you have to combine. Without the normal reasons. Travel, illness, 
those types of things give you a reason to combine anyway. Without those reasons, something else happened, some emergency, something happened on a one-off occasion, scholars allow that. But to regularly do it, because in winter now times are close, to regularly combine for four months, because you say my work, it's not possible, it isn't something the scholars allow. The, that is only allowed on one-offs again. They say, for example, a person is a surgeon. As an example, a person is a surgeon, he's got an eight-hour operation he's about to start. In these days in winter, he's starting that at 8 a.m., he's finishing it at 4 p.m. He can't leave for two minutes, for one minute, for five seconds. He's got to be there for that straight eight hours conducting that surgery on this person, heart opened up, body opened up, all types of things going on. Scholars say that's a clear exception now, or a need or a necessity, not an exception. And therefore he'd be allowed to combine his dhuhr and asr that day. That's an absolute necessity. But to say a person is working in an office job or some other type of job, every day for four months you're going to be combining dhuhr and asr or maghrib and isha, it's not allowed. Work out your dinner, <coughs> your Lunchtime, work out your 15 minute break in a way where you can do it. It's the law every four hours, 15 minute break. That's still the law. Four hours, 15 minute break. By law, lunch break. By law, you have to have these breaks. So, these breaks you are giving them, work it out in a way whereby you try and take your lunch break at the end of Dhuhr time, beginning of Asr time. Beginning of your lunch break, you pray your dhuhr, eat. At the end of your lunch break, you pray your asr, and then carry on with your work. Or pray your dhuhr earlier, as soon as the time starts in lunch break, try and take your 15-minute break just before asr time finishes. You work out something like that. You have to try and work out something. It's not an excuse to say my regular work, just regular work on a consistent basis for four months is going to mean I have to combine my prayers every day. It's not allowable. The timetables are based upon an, uh, a judgment of the eye. We don't use timetables that are based upon calculations or anything else. The timetables are a guide, are a guide to the rough estimation of when those times of the day are going to occur that enter the prayer times. But of course, it is the eye. Here though, the problem is people don't have an understanding of how to use the eye. In winter, if a person who didn't know what they were doing, they'd say Maghrib is at 2 p.m. The whole of winter. By 2 p.m. it's pitch black almost in the winter days in the UK. Some of the days you go out at 2 o'clock and it feels like it's already Maghrib in 5 minutes now. So you have to know what you're doing. You can't just say I'm going by eye, I'm not going to look at these timetables you'll be ending up praying Maghrib at 2.30 p.m. That's what it's going to be. You don't know, people who don't have an understanding of how that works and how it's going to be done, how you work this out and how you see things, then it's a problem. You're not going to be able to do it. And that's why the rough timetables are there as a guide to give you an indication. So now you think at 2.30 it's almost pitch black as it will be and it is in some days of winter. But then you look at the timetable, it's roughly guiding you that Maghrib doesn't come in till 12 minutes past 4. So now you know definitely your eye isn't working in the situation here now. So that's why the timetables are there as a guide for you to follow. But it's difficult. Using the eye, it is difficult. It's not easy with the conditions you have here. Even with the trajectory of the sun, the way it works, it is difficult. So using the timetables as a guide to go off, then it's, it's acceptable. That's what the scholars have mentioned. It is acceptable to go off the timetables as a guide. If it is obvious that something has occurred, one day it is obvious, like in summer it's clearer. In summer it's a lot more clear when Maghrib has occurred, for example. Clear days when the sun goes down. One day it's obvious it's occurred and your timetable is telling you there's 20 minutes left. For example, when it's obvious like that, of course, you go off the sightings. But 
what we're saying is you have to be careful with using the eye and sightings because there is a big possibility of more error occurring in that from most people than following the rough guidelines. Anything else? In that case, we'll round off for tonight. In two weeks' time then, belief in the books and belief in the prophets and messengers. <coughs> Your homework can be how many names, how many named books do we know of? We know some of the scholars, they said every prophet and messenger was given a book. We haven't been told the names of every single book, every single prophet and messenger was given. But we have been given the names of some of the books. So how many books can you name? That will be the homework. How many names of books do you know? And it is not the obvious four. It is not the obvious four, there are more. So that's your homework to look into. Simple, not too difficult. The homework to look into, how many names of books do we know? So two weeks time then inshallah ta'ala wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.